The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. It's good to see all of you uh, this morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, I'll be telling a story from uh, that passage of Scripture, one of my favorites um, in the Word. But we find, as we've been uh, learning about hope, is for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So the more we're in the Word, the more we can see uh, that there's a learning process that produces encouragement and endurance, and that ends up giving us hope, giving us hope in the midst of uh, some of the most difficult situations that we might face in life, and we certainly will face them. Now, Jesus taught when he was here in the flesh in John 15, 26, he says, when the advocate or the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. And so the Lord is saying, hey, when I go through this process of, he isn't saying it so much in this in this. Uh, this all of what I'm going to say, but this is what he meant, certainly, is that I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise from the dead, and because of the miracle um, that is accomplished in that, I'm going to send my spirit. So just as I came in the flesh, and I was limited by um, space and time in the flesh, I took those limits upon me. That's what it means when he humbled himself and he became a man, he became a little lower than the angels. He would die, and he would, in, in the flesh, he would submit to the Father's will. He would die, he would rise from the dead because he committed no sin. And based upon the atonement, he now has the ability to send forth the Spirit to indwell in the hearts and lives of believers. And so, as that takes place, the Spirit of God, the pneuma of God, will testify about who Christ is, he will testify of the truth, and says, we must also testify. And so all of us are to testify. It's not just the professional minister that testifies, we all testify. And so the Spirit enables us to do that because the Spirit helps us to understand what the Word is, and it creates a supernatural boldness within us, and really creates faith. And there's this cycle that we get caught in. And so we get stirred up in our faith, and as we're stirred up in our faith, that faith can lead to boldness that helps us to testify. We see this happening in the New Testament as the um, early disciples were terrified prior to the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden they have a supernatural boldness, and they don't fear for their lives anymore, even to the point of willing to die for the testimony of Jesus. So the Spirit testified to them, and the Spirit was testifying to others, and the Spirit was testifying through them, as Jesus said they would do. And so when we look in terms of um, hope being created in us as we go back and look in some of the stories in the Old Testament, um, David 
is the greatest king in Israel's history. Now, king David is he is a fascinating character study in the Old Testament. And the Messiah was expected to be like him. It was, you, you read through the Old Testament and all the prophets, they talked about how the Messiah would, not only would he come through the seed and the lineage of David, he would be similar to him in that David was like a warrior king, man. He conquered the kingdom of Israel. And so Moses leads them out of captivity. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Um, the judges help them to begin to function as a society. And then they end up with a king, King Saul, who is a king that is rejected. And then King David is the one who really solidifies the kingdom in a physical sense and helps the nation of Israel become the nation of Israel. And so we look at King David, we're looking at a very fascinating person in Scripture that the Messiah would be like him. And so the first recorded of instance of David taking any kind of action. So King Saul is first, is first the, the first king of Israel, and he has a kind of a rebellious nature. He doesn't follow the will of God. He doesn't obey God. And because of that, the kingdom is stripped away from him, and David is anointed king. Now, now Saul is like a guy, if you were going to hire somebody and you compared the resumes, you would have picked Saul. Saul's resume, stellar, right? He looked the part, he played the part, all of these different things. David, not so much. David hadn't done anything, but when you look behind what David had going on for him is he, the scripture says he was a man after God's own heart and that God chose him specifically um, for that. And so as we read about David, um, he's first anointed in chapter 16, I believe it is, of 1 Samuel. And then um, the first time he does anything in his anointed role is chapter 17, which is this incredible story that whether you've been in church all your life or you've never been in church, you've heard of the infamous story of David and Goliath. And so it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, and there's a, lot, there's a lot in there that I think sometimes gets left out. And so we read it, and when we read the story of David and Goliath, there's a lot to take away. There's a lot about encouragement. There's a lot about hope. There's a lot about um, courage itself in the midst of overwhelming odds against us. And so we read the, the story and we go, man, I need to be more like David. Man, I need, I need to be like David. And so we think that the, sometimes we look at some of these stories and we go, well, that's what this is telling me is I need to be like David. But the fact of the matter is, is when, when we pull away from the story and we get up like above in a bird's eye view, we get up there and looking at it from 30,000 feet, and looking down, we see something totally different. And the scripture does this over and over and over again. And so God, again, is using uh, the tool of language. He's made us uh, beings in his image. And what separates us from all of the rest of creation is language. <laughs> no, you know, there's no other species that has language like we have language. Um, and we take that language, and we the reason we've even been able to develop it is because God has put in us the ability to reason, to think critically. 
And so in that language, God has taken and he has preserved a word. And the word is to help us know who he is, to help us understand who we are, to help us understand why the world is broken. And the only solution for it is a savior. And so through the course of a promise, one singular promise that was made in this language to a man by the name of Abraham, God starts to tell a story. And as he tells the story over a course of thousands of years, it's like God is in heaven and he's, he's using the earth. I don't know who put this back on here, but I don't use it. It kind of, I guess I'm going to have to leave it on there, but it is bothering me. Sean, did you put that back on there or Corey? Hey man, keep your hands off my pulpit. No, I'm kidding. And so, and so through uh, thousands of years, man, like God is, he's hammering out, boom, on the anvil of time, a story in language. And so we look at the Bible and a lot of times critics of the Bible talk about how you can't trust it. And it's, it's absurd because it is the very thing when you look at Christianity, I mean, obviously the greatest miracle of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Christ. But when you look at the Bible, man, it is a miracle. It is a miracle that it has such harmony and that it tells this story. And so God is hammering out his story to humanity of who he is. And as we read it and we, we, we see it in all of its power and, and see it in, in all of the harmony and, and all the ways that God is communicating and reinforcing um, this story of who he is, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing um, historical document, though that's not exactly what it is. It contains history, but it is a story about God, about humanity. And you've got all of these different books that make it up, and it tells this story of the redemption of man. And in it, we have this thing called typology. And typology is when we see in a character that God has raised up that is a historical figure, like King David. We're not talking about a fictional character. We're talking about a a historical um, character from history that serves not only to tell about what's happening in the nation of Israel, but he also serves as a type of Messiah. What do we mean by that? Well, he doesn't fulfill the role of the Messiah, but he shows us what the Messiah is like and what the Messiah will accomplish. Now, the past few weeks, as I've shifted kind of gears and talking about how we go through a brokenness and need hope, now I've kind of shifted in how we can study the word and it gives us hope. And I'm trying to use this series as really a faith builder for you to kind of prop your faith up and help all of us to kind of look at the word and, and allow it to strengthen us as we see um, the Lord speaking this incredible truth to us through all these stories. Um, when we look back and, and we see this story um, of David, we find it in 1 Samuel. And I took a few weeks when I shifted gears, the past few weeks I've talked a lot about the middle. 
And here we find ourselves again in the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And 1 Samuel is all about King Saul and his kingdom and how he is put in authority and how he loses the kingdom because of his disobedience and God is going to raise up David. And then we get to 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel is about David like taking his kingdom. He's no longer on the run from Saul and Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 17. So right there in the middle, close to the middle, chapter 16, or chapter 17 of 30, I think it's got 31 or 32 chapters, we find the story of David and Goliath. So I'm going to paraphrase most of it, and I want you to follow along with me because we hear this story all the time. It's the ultimate David and Goliath match. You know, we see a game or we see an athlete coming up against something else. It's the ultimate David and Goliath. Well, this is the ultimate David and Goliath. This is when it happened. And the story goes is there are Um, uh, Saul is trying to do battle against the Philistines who were a very corrupt and evil people um, that were were mistreating the Israelites. And so they're they're engaged in a battle. And we have um, Saul and all the forces of Israel are on one side of a mountain. And they're camped out. And so you could just kind of envision, envision Saul and his army, and they're, they're on the side of a hill or a mountain, if you will. And they're, they're camped out. They're, they're strategically positioned so that they can go in and engage in battle against the Philistines. On the other side um, is another mountain or hill, and the Philistines are gathered on this side. And there's a valley down below in the midst of uh, the two, and they're going to meet so they can kind of be protected and observe each other. And then they can meet in the middle and they can do battle against one another uh, for control of the, who's going to get to say what happens in this situation. And so here they are and they're mustered up, man, and they're like, they're, they're, they're trying to get themselves fired up to engage in the battle. And the Philistines just happen to have this super warrior by the name of Goliath. He's um, described as being nine feet tall, a huge man. Um, his armor weighs 125 pounds. Okay, just think about that for a minute. That's strong enough to carry two and a half giant sacks of red dog food, okay? Into battle. Just think about that. You, you carry 125 pounds into battle. That's how big of a man you are. And um, it says that his, uh, his spear, the handle of his spear was like a baseball bat. The, the end of a baseball bat was as, about as big around as a baseball bat, and the spear's head weighed 15 pounds. That's a big dude right there, right? And so Israel, they, they had this champion, man, or, or the Philistines had this champion, and he would, he would just intimidate people. And he was, he was not only was he big, he was bad. He was a bad dude. He was a warrior. And so what would happen is every morning as they were trying to gear themselves up and get ready for battle, this guy would step out into the the middle and he would holler up to all the Israelites and he would say, there's no need for all of us to engage in battle. Just send one man out and the two of us will go head to head and whoever wins, instead of everybody losing their lives, whoever is the victor in that battle, they are the victor of the entire, um, uh, uh, for the nation. And so, man, he would step out, and then he would not only step out and do that, he would defy Israel and all of the, and their God. And he'd say, I defy Israel, her armies, and her God. And he would do this. Every day this went on for 40 days. 
And for 40 days, and so what he's trying to do here is he's, Saul, we know when he was um, selected as a king, the, the, the Bible says, it records the story, says that he was head and shoulders, like he was, he was taller than the average man. And Goliath, what he's trying to do is get Saul to come out and fight him. And Saul won't do it, and nobody in Israel will do it. And so they get excited each morning and think that they were going to go into battle, and then this guy would step out and defy them and God and every everything they represented. And this happened for 40 days, day after day after day after day. And nobody would go down. They'd be scared. They, they, they were terrified. They just wouldn't go and engage him in battle. And you could just think about how the Philistines felt. Well, David is back at home. He's got a couple of brothers that are in this battle that David is one of eight sons. And um, some of his brothers are back in battle, but he's not. He's the youngest. And he's back home and he's taking care of sheep. That's what David does. He's a shepherd boy. And he's very young. He's um, probably somewhere in his later teens. And his dad tells him, he says, man, uh, David, I want you to take some of this bread and I want you to take some cheese up to your brothers. Make sure they're doing all right. Bring me a report back home. What's going on there in the battle? And he says, take this cheese and give it to the commander. David's dad, Jesse, was a pretty smart dude. He's wanting to make sure his boys were taken care of. And so David gets his stuff together, and he makes his way, and he's excited because he doesn't want to be taking care of the sheep, but he's doing what he's asked to do, and he's just serving in humility like he's supposed to and waiting on God, even though God had already anointed him as king. Now, you can imagine as a young guy, that's a very difficult thing to do. And, and so David, he, he makes his way. He gets there. He gives the food out. And as he's giving the food out and he's getting things settled in the supply area, um, he goes and he's, he's asking folks, um, some of the, the, the soldiers, what in the world is going on? Uh, what, what's the status of the battle? And as he's asking, man, this giant steps out into the valley and hollers up and says, give me a man to fight me today. There's no need need for all of us to fight. And this is day 40. And David hears him, man, and this guy is cursing God. He's, he's blaspheming God and he's talking trash about Israel. And this ticks David off, man. He doesn't like what he's hearing because he knows it's not right. And so he starts asking um, about this. He's like, well, what happens if somebody goes down there and fights this guy? And the guy's telling him, saying, well, man, if you, if you go down there and somebody goes down there and takes this giant out, the king has said he's been asking for somebody to come. And he said, man, if you go down there and kill that giant, you get to be tax-free in Israel, pay no taxes, and you get to marry the king's daughter and move to the castle. David's like, whoa, wait a minute, what? And so this is a big opportunity for David. And so he starts getting fired up about it. And then they start talking about it. And then his older brother, Eliab, hears him talking about it. And Eliab says, man, what are you doing down here, boy? Who's taking care of the sheep back at the house? You're down here causing trouble, David. You need to get back home. And David is like, looks at Eliab. He says, this is what happens anytime you face that you're going to try to do something for God and you point something that's not right out. Somebody else is going to say, man, you've got the wrong motive. And so Eliab is talking to him and he's like looking at him and saying, what have I done now? Isn't there a cause here that I should be asking about? And he just turns his back on him and he keeps talking to the guys he was talking to formerly. And before long, man, the whole side of the hill starts saying, man, there's a dude talking about, there's this guy up there. He's talking about going down there and maybe facing this giant. And they're all fired up because none of them want to do it. All right. And they've been sitting there for 40 days. It's a stalemate. 
And nobody will go down there. And finally, the word comes to King Saul. And King Saul, he hears about it. And he's like, what? He's like, Sin, I want to talk to the person. So then David, they take David, and he goes to King Saul. And King Saul is expecting to see a big, burly dude. And he sees this kid. And he's like, what? He's like, I can't send you into battle. He's like, men, if you go into battle, have you seen that guy down there? He's a giant. I can't get any of these grown men to fight him. And you think that I'm going to send you down there? And he's like, man, don't let your heart fail you, king. He says, listen, that guy is down there talking trash about Israel and about God, and God will give me the battle just like he gave me the battle when I was taking care of the sheep, and this lion came up and tried to take one of my dad's sheep, and he said, I killed that lion, and there was another time that a bear came up, and he tried to take care, uh, kill one of my uh, dad's sheep, and I killed that bear, and the reason I was able to kill that bear and kill that lion is because God was with me, and he knew that I needed to do a good job, and this uncircumcised Philistine down here talking trash about God and blaspheming him has no chance against me, and even if he does, somebody needs to go down there and try to get him to shut his mouth. <laughs> so I was like, all right, man, I think you should go. <laughs> And so, so they, he, he says, but look, if you're going to go down there and fight this guy, like we need to get you set up. He said, I tell you what, you got me so fired up, son. I'm going to give you my armor and I'm going to give you my sh a shield. If you're going to represent Israel, you're going to look good when you go down there. Even if you don't make it, you're going to look good trying. So he puts all his armor on him and gives him his sword. And David is kind of walking around in the stuff and he's like, has no balance. He's never worn any of this. He's never been trained for battle. And he just looks at the king and he says, I appreciate it, bro, but I can't wear this stuff. And he takes it all off and he goes down to the stream <laughs> and he leans down and he's probably a nervous wreck. Like, what have I got myself into? And he's probably wrestling back and forth and he's reminded that this guy shouldn't be saying things that are blasphemous about God, and he probably is praying as he's choosing five stones out of the brook. He gets the five stones, and he comes back, and he gets ready to go down the hill. And as he goes down the hill, I want to pick up in the story because there's some really important things that I might overlook. I don't want to paraphrase this part. But, but, but I want you to see what happens in the midst of... Um, Verse, uh, this is verse 40, I believe it is, where I'm picking up. It says, he says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, and then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's back. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog? Did you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by a sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him and reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him and he took hold of the Philistine's sword and he drew it from the sheath and he killed him and he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. And David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. And as Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. And the king said, find out whose son this young man is. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. What a cool story. And the Bible is not boring, is it? Now read that and like, man, uh, you, you don't see this part when you're a kid growing up in church in Sunday school or children's church. They talk about David and Goliath and they draw all these cool cartoons and everything and David with a sling. But you never see the picture with David holding a giant head, Right? I mean, he's carrying like, this, this is a big head, man, right? It's a big man, and he's carrying it around. And so we look at this story, and boy, I could make all these cool applications about how for us individually, as we're trying to follow the Lord, that it speaks to us. But what I want you to see here is I want you to think back of where I started and say, man, the, the, the Jesus said the scriptures testify about me. And they don't ever, like we didn't hear the word Jesus in that story at all. The word Jesus' name never came up one time in that story. But as we back away and really see what this story is about, that God, again, on the anvil of history, he's hammering out in time who he is and what he's like and what he's going to do. We see the gospel. It's all over it. The first thing that we see is the people of God. You see, we, <laughs> I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We read this story and we're like, I'm going to be like David. And the truth of the matter is, no, we're like all the Israelites on the side of the hill. Right? And we, but we look and say, there, there's, there's something that happened once the giant died. Then there was an incredible amount of courage that impacted all of those other people. And they engaged in the battle. And so the people represent the people of God. And the people represent us. 
If we look and go, what is the type here? And we're looking over this and where are we at and where is the gospel at and all of this? We could say, man, Israel, like we could see them as the people of God themselves. The enemy represents the spiritual forces arrayed against us. And so we look at it and we go, well, the Philistines would be representative and, and they would illustrate that we, we, we face an enemy that is arrayed against us. That's why it's hard for us to read the word. That's why it's hard for us to pray is we are being defied by an enemy on a daily basis that is telling us we can't do something that God has promised us that we can do. And so in all of these things, the enemy is arrayed against us. He's trying to tear up families. He's trying to break apart marriages. He's trying to get people to rebel from the truth of God's word. And he's just constantly arrayed against us. And we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So all of the problems that we face in life, they're always rooted in something spiritual. And then we see that David is the Savior in the story. And we know that that the Messiah would come from the line of David, and he would be like David. (laughs) And so they were expecting that, a king like David. And what does David do? He brings food to the battle. And what does Jesus do? He provides for us in the midst of the battle. He is the bread of heaven. And so he, um, Jesus said to them in John chapter 4, when he was dealing with the woman at the well that I talked about last week, um, after that whole experience, and he's talking to the disciples, he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so Jesus said he was simply carrying out his father's will, which is exactly what David was doing. Who sent David to the battle? His father. He's carrying out the will of the father. He would have rather been doing something than caring for the sheep, but he was doing exactly what his father wanted him to do. And when his father summoned him to take food, just carry food to the battle, David humbly did exactly what his father asked him to do. And we see the story of the gospel all over that. When he gets there, David is ticked by the arrogance of the enemy. I'm reminded that this battle took place for 40 days, the enemy for 40 days. He came out and he said, I defy God and all of her people. I defy you and I defy your God. Well, we know that the gospels, each of the gospels records that after Jesus was baptized and he started his ministry, the first thing he did is went out into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. Why? To be tempted by who? The devil. To test him about his identity, about who he was. And ultimately he is ticked by the arrogance of the enemy, just like David was. And in Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We find David getting the king's daughter. What do we find in the church? We're the bride of Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives <clears throat> should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You get the king's daughter. You, the, Jesus, in his engagement of the enemy and defeating of the enemy, gets the bride of Christ. He gets us. We become the radiant bride. David is told that if this happens, he will live tax-free in the kingdom. We are assured that we will be given the riches of his glory. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We get all the blessings of the kingdom. Just like David. Jesus had an older brother that falsely accused him. When we look at the Pharisees, they accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse him of all kinds of different things. Even they were questioning his divinity when they said in Matthew chapter 13, isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't you supposed to be taking care of the sheep? <laughs> isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? I can hear Eliab saying, Aren't you supposed to be back home taking care of those sheep, you little shepherd boy? Get off of this hill. And it was in his own family that this was being said. And it was the Pharisees that were the Jewish religious leaders who should have been endorsing Jesus and propping him up were questioning his identity. Somebody needs to turn their car alarm off, right? Um, just like they were unimpressed with David, they were unimpressed with Jesus. They wanted David to dress differently, and they wanted Jesus to act differently. They challenged Jesus to take his kingdom on in that moment. They were like, you need to act like a king. Even his brothers tried to get him to start doing things. Like, if you're going to have a public ministry, you need to get out there and you need to start <clears throat> that ministry. And then many of the people wanted him to, to like take an earthly kingdom, um, take the role of an earthly king, and he would not do it, just like they tried to get David, King Saul tried to get David to wear his armor, and he would not. They didn't think it would end well with David. They didn't think it would end well with Jesus either when he faced the cross. And he said in Luke 9, 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Goliath thought he'd defeat David, and Satan thought he would defeat Jesus. David runs wholeheartedly into the battle when the enemy faces him and approaches him where most people would be timid. David runs as fast as he can. He repeats truth to the enemy that he's facing, and then he slays the giant. We know that when Jesus, he started his earthly ministry, and for three years he ministered and discipled people, but then the Bible, the gospels take this turn, and they, they describe it at Jesus as Jesus, he set his face like a flint towards 
Jerusalem. What does that mean? Like he was hardened toward that. When he turned around and went back into Jerusalem, you see, he had to start going around the surrounding areas and preaching and teaching about what he was doing because it had become so hostile for him to be in Jerusalem because the religious um, leadership wanted to, to, to kill him. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted him out of there. And so they go. And then all of a sudden, he sets his face like a flint back toward Jerusalem. And he knows as he's going, I'm going to be crucified. Just like David ran wholeheartedly into the battle. David uses Goliath's sword to cut off the head of the giant. And Jesus uses the cross to cut off the head of our enemy. All the way back. Remember, God is hammering out in time what he's going to do, who he's going to be like. Listen, Samuel doesn't realize when he's writing this stuff, he's writing these things that are going to parallel the gospel. He's just writing about the historical account with David and Goliath. But we look at it, and us, in hindsight, can look back having received the Holy Spirit, who is the advocate, who helps us to uh, understand all that the scriptures teach in order to give us endurance and hope. And we begin to see, man, the gospel is all over this story of David and Goliath. And we look all the way even back to the Genesis account. It says, when the enemy um, led the first humans into sin, it says that you shall bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman shall crush his head. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." After the defeat of the giant, Israel's confidence soared, and they stormed the city gates of Gath all the way to the gates of Ekron. I'm reminded of Matthew 6.18, when Peter said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. What does that mean? It means the people of God, once they receive Christ into their lives and they are indwelt with the Spirit and the Spirit illuminates them and starts this cycle of faith in them, we will storm the gates of hell just like the Israelites stormed the gates of Ekron. We will begin to rescue people that are far away from God. Even after the defeat of Saul, or the defeat, Saul didn't recognize the identity of David. Like he didn't, he didn't recognize exactly who um, David was, and he wants he wants further. Uh, like he he couldn't he couldn't put together that God's hand was on this kid's life, and so. We look at this story in the gospel, and even after the resurrection, many religious leaders failed to recognize that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead and was God in the flesh. In the, in the uh, a story or the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 18, whenever the, uh, uh, the apostles move from being in hiding, like they're on the side of the hill waiting for the champion to be defeated, the champion is defeated by Jesus, and on the day of Pentecost, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they come off the hill. They come out of the room in hiding and they start preaching the gospel and the religious leaders come to them and say, man, don't talk in the name of Jesus. They didn't recognize that Jesus was God. They called him again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And here's where it gets really interesting. 
All right? And this is, this is all designed to do one thing, is just to prop up your faith. Saul calls for David, and he asks, Whose son are you, young man? And David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. David means beloved. Jesse means existing one. So this could literally be read, I am the son of the existing one, love born in Bethlehem. Come on, man. How much more evidence do you need? That's like, what? It is the Holy Spirit's purpose to teach us about Jesus. And so part of my role as your pastor is to equip and teach. But you have to know, man, like, like I get in the Word and I start reading this stuff and it, it just, it blows my mind. And it fires me up. And it helps me to see in all of the stuff that is so messed up, I can look beyond all of the physical stuff that I can see with my physical eyes, and I can start walking by faith instead of by sight. And so I want to encourage you to know, man, like, get in the Word. Stay in the Word. Keep going back to the Word, because the Word is the story of God being hammered out in time, telling you who he is, telling you what he's like, teaching you all of the truth that you need to navigate this weird world that we're living in. And, and, and so the big idea is you can always trust that God will speak to you when you were in his word. Are you hearing from the Lord today? Are you getting a fresh word from him? And if you say, no, man, I, I feel a little flat. Just get in the word. Get in the word and let it go to work on you, man, and let it build that faith. Let it illuminate stuff and let the word start to come out of you. And as the word starts to come out of you, that cycle will begin and we will become all that we are supposed to be in Christ and so I'm going to ask you right now just to bow in a spirit of prayer and let the word do what it's designed to do today. Like, are you, are you functioning in the power of your champion? Are you still sitting on the side of the hill letting the enemy defy you and defy God? Just, there's no way for a believer to live. We got to engage the battle we got to realize that we're in it. Even if we're not active, we're in it. And it's impacting the kingdom. And our, our, our function, our design is to be impacting it in a positive and powerful way so that the kingdom and all the blessings of the kingdom can flow through us. And we don't do it like, like in our own power. He is our champion. And so when we face the giants in our lives, like we, it's not like we're going, I got to be David. No. It's like Christ is in me. 
the champion is in me. And he is the one, like the battle is the Lord's. All I, my job is to believe and obey in the midst of, of whatever I'm facing, and the Lord will make a way as he fights the battles for me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you for your stories in the word, and how we see the gospel all over them. This story, Lord, has carried me my whole life. And it continues to stir me up, even to this day. When I study it, when I preach about it, Lord, it fires me up. And I pray that it would fire your people up. I pray, Lord, that it would ignite us to get in the Word and to stay in the Word and let the Word do its work on us. And just to let it shape us, to shape our thought life, to shape our obedience, to just keep calling us back to a place where greater freedom will be poured out in our lives. And I pray, Lord, for these folks who are here today, whatever the surrender needs to be in their lives, you'd help them to lay it down. And I ask it in Christ's name and amen. Which would encourage you as I turn the service over to Sean. Man, if you make a decision, let me know about it. Let me know how I can pray for you. Send me an email. Um, put it in a connection card on your way out. Uh, just tear that thing off your bulletin. If you got a special prayer request, put that in there, and I will hold you up before the Lord as well. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.